Well, thank you, worshipers. We appreciate uh, you leading us in worship here, and uh, uh, we're excited now to move on to uh, 2 Kings 16. As I uh, told you in my announcements, we're moving through the book of 2 Kings, and here's where um, the part of the scripture where uh, uh, in the chronology, one of the big prophets of the Bible comes in. His name is Isaiah. And uh, as I was praying about this and how to present this to you, uh, I thought it would be a neat thing. I I pray that the Lord's in this and uh, moves us in the right way, that you would see how interconnected the prophet Isaiah is to the kings. And so as we move through 2 Kings here, uh, we're going to have some lessons in uh, uh, Isaiah as well. So uh, let's do this. Let's pray, and then we'll move through 2 Kings 16. Well, Lord, we do, we come here uh, this uh, night expectant that you're going to do a mighty work in our hearts, that you're going to uh, uh, solidify some things for us, gives us um, markers and guideposts and, uh, through the Old Testament that we can hold on to and our hearts can hold on to. And even more than that, Lord, uh, and better than that, you're going to show us that your plan was being worked out for all the ages, and uh, what a blessing that is to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'd give us the grace and the resource uh, to live these things out this week and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we do. We find ourselves now in uh, 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings 16. Let me read it uh, to you or with you. Uh, as we move through here. We're just going to read the first six verses to begin. Here we go. The word of the Lord. Verse 1, 2 Kings 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he didn't do, or he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed, and he burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but couldn't overcome him. At that time, Razan, king of Syria, captured uh, Eloth for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. Then the Edomites went to Eloth and dwelt there to this day. So what's going on here? Well, listen, we're moving through the two uh, kingdoms of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Uh, That kingdom split uh, around 931 or so BC, and now we find ourselves, we find ourselves in the 730 BCs, okay, or BC, in the 730s BC. So we've moved about 200 years. We've gone through approximately 18 of the Israeli kings, the northern kings, and around 11 of the southern kings, okay? And we now, uh, or excuse me, last week we talked about uh, Uzziah, Uzziah, back in 2 Kings chapter 15. Now, 
Uzziah also has another name. His name's Azariah. And we saw what he did uh, and uh, talked about that. And now we come to his grandson, a king named Ahaz, who reigns in Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin, Judah, those two tribes, and have a promise from God through David that David's descendants would sit on the throne of Israel, or, or sit on the throne of Israel or, and Judah, through Judah, uh, forever. And that will come to fruition, we know, uh, through Jesus Christ when he comes to rule and reign. Well, anyway, this is Ahaz who reigns in Judah. And you see here uh, that he uh, did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, number two. Uh, verse 2, as his father David had done. Again, his father wasn't David, but he descended from the line of David, and that's why they say it that way. Now, this is something you really need to know. What are we talking about here in verse 3? Well, if you don't want to turn there, just listen for a minute. As I turn to Second Chronicles 28, I'm going to read you from there, which, uh, from there, which makes it more plain to you what Ahaz was doing, okay? Everybody following? And here's what it says about Ahaz in chapter, or excuse me, verse 2 of uh, 2 Chronicles 20, 28. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which meant, it tells you here, he made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Here it comes. You ready? And burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Now we know from reading the Old Testament that these uh, practices were uh, practices of the Canaanite people who resided in the Promised Land prim, pri, uh, prior to Joshua coming across the Jordan and the Israelites, and they were to completely wipe them out, but uh, that didn't happen. And so uh, on and on and on, we have or we see this problem, especially in the northern kingdom and the kings following idols, um, uh, uh, worshiping in the high places. And then we see uh, some of them, and it's rubbing off in the southern kingdom of this practice, this Canaanite practice, this despicable practice of sacrificing children to their gods. It's gotten completely evil and out of control. And it says here that in verse 5, then Rezin, the king of Syria, Syria's to the north of Israel, and Pekah, the son of Ramaya, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged him. And again, in 2 Chronicles 28, we're told more of what happened as a result of that battle. The Syrians and the northern kingdom came against uh, Ahaz in the southern kingdom, and it says this. You can just listen. Second Chronicles 28, uh, verse 5. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, talking of Ahaz, and they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. Then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. 
For Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day. Uh, uh, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, Azrikam, the officer over the house, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and they took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria." And so we see that the enemies of Judah, including their own brethren, the ten northern tribes, have surrounded them, and God has uh, uh, allowed this to happen. Uh, We see that they're walking away from the way in which God had set up worship for them, and in fact, had got to the place where they were even sacrificing their children. How awful and despicable. Well, here we see something else in verse 6 of Second uh, Kings 16. Razan, king of Syria, captured Eloth for Syria. Now, if you had a picture of Israel and it looked like a rectangle and the bottom comes to a point down by the Red Sea, that place, Eloth, is the southernmost point of all of the country of Israel. And it was a very important port city for commerce. So what the writer here is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that they were not only weakened because of all the people that were killed or taken away, but there was also a very important southern port city that was taken away from them, which weakened significantly their commerce. One thing else you need to know is uh, right here, Uh, Most people believe, and I think uh, you'll see (laughs) that this is so, Isaiah chapter 7 comes in. Isaiah chapter 7. So let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 7. It's astounding how this book fits together. Look at this. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, see, He's setting us uh, in the same place that we were in 2 Kings. That this raisin, king of Syria, Pekah the son of Ramaliah, went up to Jerusalem to make war, but couldn't prevail against it. Now listen, it was told to the house of David, verse 2. Who's the house of David? The house of David is Ahaz and the southern kingdom. It was told, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Are you catching what's happening here? There was uh, somebody, Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, telling the house of David that serious forces would be deployed in Ephraim. And his heart and the heart of his people were moved. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shershajab, I don't even know how to say it. Share Jashub, sorry about that. Your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, are you catching what's happening right here? The word of the Lord has come to Isaiah. Isaiah and his son go out to meet with the king of Judah. That's Ahab. And they're told to tell him, verse 4, take heed and be quiet. Don't fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, 
For the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the sons of Ramaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it, and let's make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God. Listen to this. This is what God is telling King Ahaz through Isaiah. He's telling them this. This plan, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it won't be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. Now listen, circle this word. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. In other words, I understand God's telling Ahaz through the prophet, you feel like all the pressure is coming in on you and your country, but you must turn to me and believe. They're not going to fully conquer you. Listen to this, verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. He speaks to him again. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test uh, the Lord. Why? Because he would be obligated to obey. Then he said, or obliged to obey. Is that a better word? <laughs> yes. Then he said, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? He's talking to the king. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. How about this? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, capital S, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now let's stop right there. He's telling, talk to him about two things. He said, I know it looks bleak. These two have done damage to you, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, but they will not prevail. And oh, by the way, I want you to believe in me. Trust me. And now I'm going to give you a sign. And many people believe that this sign was actually uh, fulfilled in the near fulfillment during the time that we're talking about here, during the time of Ahaz. That there was maybe a virgin lady, not maybe, who bore a son and named uh, uh, her kid Emmanuel. But she had natural relations with her husband. But we know that on all of these prophecies of Isaiah, many of these prophecies of Isaiah, not all, but many of the prophecies of Isaiah, there is a near fulfillment, a fulfillment that's happening at the time that it's being written, and then a far fulfillment sometime in the, uh, uh, in the future. And we know uh, that this is certainly a far uh, prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who was born to a virgin. She bore a son, and she called his name Emmanuel. She actually called his name Jesus right? Jesus saves. Yahweh saves. But this name, Emmanuel, describes who he is. Jesus, right, is uh, God saves, or excuse me, uh, yeah, God saves, but Emmanuel is God with us, and he certainly was God's with us, or God with us. And here we see a a near and a far fulfillment of this Emmanuel prophecy. 
Well, it goes on and it says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass uh, that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly. Uh, whistle for the fly. That might be a, uh, a reference to Egypt and their soldiers. That is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and the clefts of the rocks and on all thorns and on all pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds, for curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land, because their uh, uh, food would be hard to find. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns with arrows and bows. Men will come there, verse 24, because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to Rome. Now, what is happening here? What are they talking about? Well, here, as in uh, uh, all places that Isaiah writes, uh, he's giving us uh, uh, a, a fourth telling, a telling of what's happening in the current, and also a foretelling, a, 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 a telling of what's going to happen in the future. And here we see that he says to Ahaz, trust me, these folks aren't going to totally um, beat you or or, uh, surround you. Just believe in me. But there will be a country under my control, God says, because God is sovereign. And their name is Assyria. And they're going to come down and they're going to lay waste to um, Israel, to Israel, right? And here's what I want you to see. Take your hand, keep it in Isaiah, and just move back to 2 Kings 16. I'll wait there with you for a minute. Just take it back there to 2 Kings uh, 16, just so you have reference uh, where, where you are. And I want you to just look back one page. In v- chapter 15, uh, right around verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tilglath. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took all these different places. We talked about that last time, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Now turn with me just very quickly over to chapter 18, verse 17. What happens here is there is a early or a, a, a taking of people from the northern kingdom by the Assyrians... And uh, he takes them out. You see it there. He's bothering us right there in chapter 15. But then look, uh, about 10 or so years later, another king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he starts uh, uh, to come in and he uh, threatens, he threatens uh, all of uh, uh, the whole uh, country of Israel 
the whole country uh, of Judah, right? And so you can see right here in 18, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent the Tartan, etc., etc., with a great army. He's taken now uh, the northern kingdom, and guess what he does? Through 18, 19, and 20, this king of Assyria, listen to this, folks, he gets all the way to the gates of Judah, all the way to the wall. And the Bible tells us that right at that time, the king of Assyria is thwarted by an angel of the Lord, and Judah is saved. Judah is saved, right? So now, okay, I'm trying to set this up for you. Go back with me to 2 Kings 16. I'm trying to set this up to you, for you. We stopped off at 2 Kings 16, verse 6. I know I'm flipping around, but in order for you to understand it, you've got to see how this happens. And in 2 Kings 16, 6, they, the Edomites uh, just moved into Elath, that southern port city, and then, listen folks, the prophecy of Isaiah 7 happened. Remember that? We just read it. The prophecy of Isaiah 7, uh, uh, 7 happened. And he, listen, we go on in verses 8, 9, and 10. We can hardly believe what Ahaz has done now. Catch it. Verse 7, 2 Kings 16. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilzer, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Now remember, <laughs> this king... Uh, of Judah, Ahaz, has the knowledge of Isaiah's prophecy. And the prophecy is, if you'll just believe, we're going to be good. Hold on. And what, what should this king have done as the leader of God's people? Turned and repented and got on his face and said, I do believe. I will believe. I am going to believe. But instead, guess what he said? He said, to the enemy, Assyria, he thought, well, if I just buddy up with them a little bit and pay some tribute to them, they'll leave us alone. Well, that didn't happen. Look at this. He says something here that you might not catch, uh, but I want you to catch it. I'm your servant and your son. In Exodus 4.22, when the, uh, Moses is talking to Pharaoh, God says, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Also, as a servant, in 1 Kings 11.32, in 1 Kings 11.32, you don't have to turn there, David refers to himself as a servant of the Lord and the house of Judah. You get it? Uh, David, as the representative of the house of Judah, is a servant of the Lord. So guess what Ahaz is saying to God right here? Actually, he's saying it to uh, uh, the enemy, the one uh, that leads Assyria, the one who's going to wreak all this havoc and pull them out, ultimately. Guess what he says to them right there? He says to them right there, I'm giving up my sonship under God and committing my sonship unto you. That's how far afield the leader of the people of God had gone. And remember what he'd been participating in. He'd been participating in idol worship, uh, high place worship, and obviously uh, sacrificing children to the gods of Canaanites. 
Wow, it got out of control. He's acting here like a one that's not like one who's not a person of God or a son or daughter of the king or of God. He's acting like anyone else outside of that family. You get it? He's renounced it. And I wonder if we often do that and don't live uh, like we're supposed to as kings and queens or prince and princesses of the king. Well, here it says, hey, why don't you come up and save me from the hand of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me? And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and then the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Israel. He robbed, oh my goodness, he robbed the treasuries uh, in the house of the Lord in the temple and sent it to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, verse 9, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, took it, carried its people captive to Kir, and killed, or killed Raisin. So what, you know what, Ahaz must be thinking to himself, great, what a short-term problem I fixed. The king of Assyria isn't bothering us yet. Or won't. We've appeased him, but that never works. Sin and the enemy of our soul can never be appeased. And we see what happens. Verse 10, 2 Kings 16. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet this king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. He got enamored with an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the design of the altar. He took time to get the design. He was enamored with the priest, or excuse me, the altar of worship from a pagan country. You catching it? Now, see that has significance because remember the temple was supposed to be designed exactly, exactly according to God's blueprint. Exodus twenty-five, verse nine, verse forty, and Hebrews tells us that heaven is the reality of that blueprint that God made the temple and the tabernacle like. You understand? So you are not, whoever you are, to mess with the way in which God has set these things up. But here, he sees an altar, and he likes it's how it looks, so he sends to the priest. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached the altar, made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering, his grain offering, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Wow. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. This is all messing with the blueprint that God had designed for their worship. And, oh, by the way, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that a king was not to mix his office with the priest. Several of the kings prior, just the last week and the week before, we saw were getting in trouble because they were doing that. Who only comes and uh, can mingle the offices? Jesus. Here, though, he's doing that, and he's not supposed to. So, verse 15 Chapter 16, then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great uh, new altar, burn the morning uh, burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of their land, their grain offering, their drink offerings, and sprinkle on all the blood uh, of the burnt offerings. 
And all the blood of the sacrifice and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest, or Urijah the priest, according to the, all that King Ahaz commanded. He didn't try to restrain him, in other words. Boy, you don't want yes people around you. Get people who will talk to you in a loving and truthful way. But here he didn't. And he, uh, verse 17, And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the cart and removed the lavers. Um, uh, from them, and he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. You see that? Also, he removed the Sabbath, uh, Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on the count of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not uh, written in the book of the Chronicles, which we read, of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his father and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Can you see what happens when we don't worship the Lord in the way in which he asks us to worship him? How does he ask us to worship him now? In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. With all of the truth that the Lord pours out through his word, but also with our spirit as we lift up the name of the Lord and we have a heart response back to him to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why on Saturday nights or whenever, when we're preparing for the Sunday worship, we should pray and get our hearts right to come in here and to worship the Lord in a love response in spirit and truth. He also says, don't forsake assembling together. There's often a lot of people who say, oh, I can go out into the woods, and nobody likes to go into the woods more than me, but, oh, I can go out into the woods and, you know, worship the Lord. Well, you can do that. Of course you can. But the Lord says, don't neglect getting together as a body of believers. And if you are, you're not worshiping as he's asked us to do. Praise the Lord uh, and that we keep doing that, and that we, uh, God gives us uh, wonderful servants here who help us uh, do that. Well, le- let me ask you something. Uh, let me ask you to do something. Turn now to the book of Isaiah. Turn now to the book of I- Isaiah. Why do I think we should go through Isaiah? Well, the Lord's putting it on my heart, but you've got to realize in chapter 1, verse 1, I think this is why we should go through the book of Isaiah. Verse 1, chapter 1 says this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, (laughs) Amos, it's not Amos, by the way, which he saw concerning, listen, mark this, Judah and Jerusalem, when? In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We're right in the middle of that period of the Judah kings. And I thought it would be a wonderful, powerful thing to see the uh, book of Isaiah or to study the book of Isaiah and to determine what is going on in Judah at the time that God is using, excuse me, both uh, Israel and Judah, but he is prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom. But what's going on in Israel, the northern kingdom, that would precipitate God using an enemy to come and pull them out, to take them captive? And what would precipitate God several years later, hundred and so years later, having the Babylonians come and take out the people of Judah as judgment. What would precipitate that? Why would God do that? 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to, for the next several weeks, tie in the end of 2 Kings and Isaiah. Well, we already read you the chapter 7 prophecy, the chapter 7 prophecy, or uh, the chapter uh, 7 um, story also about uh, King Ahaz and uh, how he was uh, receiving this prophecy but didn't turn and believe. Even when he heard a, a direct word from the Lord, he didn't heed God's warning. Wow, is that a big uh, lesson for us, right? Well, now uh, we're going to turn back uh, to Isaiah. What I hope to get out of this tonight, I should have maybe said this at the beginning, but I want us to know what 2 Kings 16 says and means for us. I want to know, or I want you to know, what Isaiah 7 or, and, uh, means for us, or, or says and means for us, and how it ties in to 2 Kings 16. I want you to know that. And then I want us, as we finish out, Second Kings, I want us to become acquainted with the uh, amazing book of Isaiah. So let's do this. Who is Isaiah? He's the son of this one named Amos. We don't know that much about him. We know when he lived during these reigns of these kings. I read them to you. So he was around from around 740 BC to around 680 BC. That's when he lived and uh, did his ministry. He is married and has a wife who's called a prophetess. That's in chapter 8, verse 3. He, his wife is a prophetess. He has two kids. I read you the name of one, Sher Jeshabub. We encountered him in Isaiah 7, 3. His name means a remnant will return. What's a remnant? A remnant is a small group of believing people. And that's one of the themes of Isaiah. God always takes care of, looks after, and has, and sends grace and mercy to a remnant. He has another son. I don't even have any idea how to pronounce this. I'll try. It's in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 and 18. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which means uh, quick to plunder and swift for spoil. Quick to plunder and swift for spoil. Why? Why are, that's another theme of, Israel, or of, of Isaiah. The other theme of Isaiah is because we rebel against God, judgment comes. And what's really fascinating about the book of <laughs> Isaiah, as many have called it, the Alps of the Old Testament. Some have even said the fifth gospel. The first 39 chapters speak of warning and judgment. But then the last 27 chapters, verses 40 through 66, speak of comfort and hope. In fact, how fascinating, how fascinating is this? In chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, that's the prophecy where, uh, of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to whom? Jesus Christ. So what we have here is an exact split of the Old Testament books, 39 books in the Old Testament, and then 27 books in the New Testament. In fact, the last chapter, 66 books of Isaiah, just like there's 66 books in the Bible, the last chapter of Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the fifth gospel. It speaks heavily uh, of the Messiah, and it's got several messianic prophecies. Who is it speaking to? I already told you, mostly to the Judah uh, or the southern kingdom, to Judah, the southern kingdom uh, of the nation. 
What does it contain? Well, it contains Isaiah's prophecies, right? It contains his prophecies. When Isaiah was uh, uh, probably a young, uh, uh, young one, the Assyrians took away the population of uh, Israel, as I told you in 2 Kings 15, verse 29, and then 10 or so uh, years later, uh, Samaria fell in 2 Kings 17. That's important, okay? Don't get lost here. Here's what I really want you to pay attention to. Why in the world should we study Isaiah? Why should we study Isaiah? Well, I jot de- jotted down uh, three or four things here that I think are uh, going to be important for you over the next several weeks. You ready? Here's one. You're going to get a clearer or a clear, however you want to say it, as much as we can know, a clear vision of who God is. You're going to get a clear vision of who God is. You're going to see his heart. You're going to see what grieves his heart. You're going to see what pleases his heart. You're going to see uh, the attributes of God. You're going to see uh, what, uh, or how God responds to things, how God proactively um, works things. You're going to see the sovereignty of God. You're going to get a clear picture or a clearer picture of who God is. I think when you're done with this, I hope, <laughs> what a segue, you're going to have hope for the future. And see, that's why I believe the Lord's speaking to me to teach this now in conjunction with, after this, uh, the book of Revelation, so that we wouldn't be scared of the future, but that we would have hope for the future. We can stand and have hope, and we are uh, in the Lord. When we see God's plan working out, oh man, it gives us hope. Well, what else? Here's one thing I don't want you to miss. Knowing the book of Isaiah gives you a depth and a breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want me to say that again? Because I don't want that one to go by you. It gives you a depth and a breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, again, in Isaiah 40, the beginning of the second section of the book, that corresponds to the New Testament, guess what they talk about in that chapter? Good tidings or good news or the gospel. The gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is that we're sinners and fallen short of the glory of God and that all of us deserve death and judgment. And death and judgment has come, but it came On his son, Jesus Christ, who bore it for us, so that now, by the grace and mercy of God, we can have new life and have his life actually living in and through us, so that we would be comforted. That's the second part of the uh, book of Isaiah. And it all happens through repentance and faith. How are we comforted? Be through repentance and faith. We come back. We receive what the Lord has done for us. Agree that we're sinners and come back to him. Okay. Here's the final thing I think this does. And I think this is really important. I'm actually going to read from another pastor. There's a a man who did a study on the book of Isaiah. Uh, His name is Drew Hunter. This is the final reason why I think we should study the book of Isaiah. You ready? I think we should study the book of Isaiah because Isaiah forms a bridge between the biblical past and the biblical future. He looks backward to the first exodus and then forward to a new exodus. 
Backward to the first creation and forward to a new creation. Backward to the first Jerusalem and forward to a new Jerusalem. Backward to the first Davidic king and forward to a new Davidic king. And several hundred years later, Jesus arrives to bring all these promises to pass. You see, here's what I think it does for your study of the Bible. I think if you learn the book of Isaiah, it's like a, a, uh, a, 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 a pole, a, a pole star right in the middle of your Bible learning where you can gain your bearings of what's happening in the Old Testament and what's to come in the New, and it gives you a depth and a breadth. So do, with, do me a favor. Turn with me to the first chapter, and we're going to go fast. I've got 15 minutes here. Six chapters. Ready? Here we go. What's the outline for chapters 1 through 5? Well, it's an examination of Judah's condition, the southern kingdom's condition at the time of this prophecy. Now, the most famous, maybe, chapter of Isaiah is Isaiah 6, when Isaiah encounters the Lord. He has a vision of the Lord. And other prophets oftentimes start their books by seeing the Lord. So what are these first five prophecies, or first five chapters, shall I say? Did they become before Isaiah met the Lord or after? And the answer is, the commentators are split. Some believe that chapters 1 through 5 is just a general indictment of what's going on in Judah. And yes, that is true. Some believe uh, that these happened, or these things happened, uh, during the chapter in which I just read to you, 2 Kings chapter 16, which is during the king of Ahaz, when, remember, uh, uh, you'd seen at the end of chapter 15 and on into 16, people being taken out by the Assyrians. Some people believe that's when it hap- uh, this prophecy happened. And some people believe that this happened during a subsequent king, the last king, his name was Hezekiah, uh, a prophecy uh, that happened during his reign. Well, whatever. Here's what I think you should know. This clearly is an indictment on Judah and what was going on. So here's, here's another fascinating thing to do for yourself. This is real. This happened during this time, during the uh, 700s BC. Of course, this happened. And Isaiah, who lived contemporaneous uh, with these events, is hearing from the Lord and prophesying against them. And he's telling them what the sins are that are heavy and evil. Well, they're the people of God. And so we're the people of God. So pay great attention because what is one thing, one great thing among many that the Old Testament does? Guess what the Old Testament does? It shows you and I who we are. And these first 39 chapters speak to this country, but also to the people of the country. And now we are the people of God. So it impacts us as well. Here we go real quick. Verse 1, chapter 1, Isaiah. Oh, by the way, Isaiah means the Lord saves or the Lord is my salvation or the Lord is salvation, right? And that's the theme of this thing too, or this book. So the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. I read it to you in the uh, days of those kings. What was the wickedness of Judah? I'm not going to read every verse. I'm going to show you the verses. Well, here's one thing. 
the most uh, discouraging thing or the most awful thing to the Lord, isn't it true? He nourished in verse 2 and brought up these children and they have rebelled against me. See, the first and foremost thing that's happening here is the Lord's, as a father, feels terrible because his children are leaving them, not doing the things that he's asked. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master, a crib, uh, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't consider. They're no smarter than an, an ox or a donkey. They don't even know who their master are. It's in verse 4. It's a people or a, sin, or a nation sinful that's laden with iniquity, a brood of vipers. They've forsaken the Lord, verse 4, and provoked anger, the Holy One. Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? Uh, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. This is where their disobedience, I'm saying this, has led them to be pussy sores. That's what sin does. It's awful and evil, and it leads to uh, uh, just out-of-control infection in our spiritual life. Well, uh, they've been, not been closed or bound up, these sores. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. And if you believe this took place during the time of Ahaz, I read to you in Second Chronicles 28 when Judah was attacked by Israel, Syria, Edom, Philistines. Uh, and Assyria uh, is coming against it. So you see that they, uh, uh, because of the sin, it creates desolation here, right? Look down in verse 10, 10 through 15. Uh, you're going to read this yourself, and you're going to read every word. We're going to go through all six chapters. I want you to see something that the Lord hated during this time. Apparently, during all of this time, the people kept worshiping. And hear the word of the Lord in verse 10. Rulers of Sodom... Think about this. He's calling his own nation, the people who he loves, Sodom. Give ear to the Lord of our God, people of Gomorrah. Your sacrifices to me, what are they, says the Lord? I've had enough of these burnt offerings, etc., etc. In verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination, and keep reading when you spread out your hands in a prayer posture, I'm going to hide my eyes. Why? Why would the Lord say this? Because it was empty religion. It was doing religious stuff with no heart involved. And God hated it. And he says in verse 16, it's always been this way and always will be this way. What matters? Real repentance Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil of your doings from before your eyes or before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend fatherless, plead for the widow. And he says, come and let us reason together through your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He doesn't tell you how yet, but he says it's coming. In the Old Testament, your sins were covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins are removed forever. And here he says it, remember, near fulfillment and far fulfillment. And here, right here in the prophecy, uh, Isaiah is telling the people of God, if you will come to the Lord and reason with him, talk with him, plead with him, repent, your sins can be like scarlet, although 
or even though they're like scarlet, they can be as white as snow, etc. You know this prophecy and you love it. But can you imagine at the time in which this was said, when all the enemies were around them and they're getting ready to be ripped out, and even a hundred years later, the Babylonians coming to rip out the, uh, Judah, and all of this happening, and all of this, and you're wondering where the Lord and what is he doing, kind of like a time like now. Right in the middle of it, the Lord says, if you'll just look to the cross, now, they didn't know it was the cross yet, exactly. But they knew something or someone was coming, the Messiah. Well, you go on in verse 21. Uh, Jerusalem, ver- uh, the faithful city, is a harlot. And look what they've done. They've murdered in 21. Uh, they've committed fraud. Your wine is mixed with water. Uh, your princes or your political people are rebellious and they're in companion with thieves, and everyone likes to be bribed and give bribes and find uh, money and rewards, and no one defends the fatherless. That's the sins of the people. Man, does that sound familiar. And the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, I will rid myself of my adversaries, take vengeance, turn my hand, thoroughly purge away your dross, verse 25, 26, I'll restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning, and afterwards you're going to be called the city of righteousness. You see, there's always a glimmer of hope with the Lord. There's always hope with the Lord. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitence with righteousness, the destruction of transgressors, sinners be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of those high places, those pagan worship centers, terebinth trees, which you have desired. You'll be embarrassed because of these gardens which you've chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth tree whose leaf fades. But you know what gives me hope? Psalm 1. But if you'll be a man who loves the law of the Lord, you'll be like a tree planted by the river whose leaf will never wither. But here, the strong will, uh, or, the le- or you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades. Okay, or whose leaf fades. Excuse me. Now go to chapter two. Chapter two goes all the way this next section through chapter four, and what you're going to get here now is some of the future glories of the coming of the Lord. It's amazing. Here in the middle of 700 so BC, 700 or so BC, you get a little glimpse of the coming of the Lord. We understand it as this, these times of the Lord, these end times, these, these eschatology, just very quickly. We live in the church age now. The Lord is going to come back in the clouds for, and rapture us, and we're going to be with him during a seven-year period of tribulation in which Christ, or, or God will pour out um, uh, his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world here on earth, and he will take care of and um, do business with uh, the Jews. And at the end of that time, Jesus Christ is going to come back with his saints to the earth and rule and reign for a thousand years. I'm doing a very simplistic uh, end times outline. At the end of that time, of course, uh, the, uh, the enemy of our souls will be released, but uh, 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 he will ultimately be uh, uh, thrown into the lake of fire, and then the new heavens, or the heavens and the earth will fade away, and the new heavens and the new earth will uh, uh, come down, and we will live and reign forever with our Lord. See, that's the uh, very quick summary of what the end times are. Well, here, listen to this. 
you hear, you start to see these future glimpses that were given to Isaiah all the way back in the 700s BC. The word that Isaiah, the son of Ahaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. There it is, the time of Messiah. The time of Messiah, the rapture, the, thou, uh, the seven years of tribulation and the thousand-year reign, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, Mount Moriah, where the temple sits, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow uh, to it, the temple of God. Well, the temple of God, does it need to rebuilt, be rebuilt before the rapture? No, uh, it doesn't but it needs to be rebuilt before the Lord comes back uh, and rules and reigns on the earth. And he, there, he will, it will be established on the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow to it. It's going to be the center, the epicenter of the world then. And many people shall come and say, come and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. You catching that? We're going to go there and be taught, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. These are messianic things that we know from Matthew uh, are going to, uh, Jesus is going to take care of, and he'll rebuke many people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning forks, and sh nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. The thousand-year millennial reign of peace that's imposed by Jesus himself. You catch that? Here's a glimpse in 700 B.C. Well, look at this, the day of the Lord. O house of Jacob, which is Judah, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. In light of this, in light of this, Judah, walk in the light of the Lord. Oh, by the way, people, people out here listening, in light of the fact that this is going to happen and that the Lord is going to come back in judgment, we should walk in light of it. Give our lives to him. Live for him. Well, verse 6, you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they're filled with Eastern ways. Are you catching that? They started taking things from the Eastern religions. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with children of foreigners. You see it? Uh, and their land is also full of silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. In other words, they're, they're full of uh, greed and wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth if we're using it appropriately for the Lord. But when we desire it more than the Lord, when your wealth has you. And here he says, that's what they were like back then. And their land is full of idols. Yes, they worship the work of their own hands. We saw that as we're reading through Second Kings. And people bow down, verse 9, and each man humbles himself, therefore uh, do not uh, forgive him. In other words, uh, they were worshiping, but they were worshiping the wrong things, like men and idols. Well, 10 through 22 is a description of the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It's a generic sense. It starts with the rapture. Through the tribulation period, when Christ or God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and then the Lord comes back to the earth with his saints and rules and reigns for a thousand years. And then the new heavens and the new earth. That's the day of the Lord. It be, that's the beginning of it. You see it? And it just, it's a movement through there. It's not necessarily one day, but it's all this time. Right now, in a, in a sense, it's not really true, but it's man's day. But there's coming a time when it's going to be all about the Lord and his day. And here... He describes what it's like. And then what will it be like during this time? 
as the Lord raptures us and pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and then the Lord comes back in judgment, listen to this, enter to the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Lofty looks of men are going to be humbled. Haughtiness will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in his day. You catching this? For the day of the Lord of hosts are going to come upon everything, everything that's proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the high mountains, verse 14, upon every high tower, 15, ships of Tarshish, that means commerce, by the way, the loftiness of man will be bowed down, haughtiness of men will be brought low. And listen, go to verse 19. They're going to go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. 2 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it, which will be burned up. And so we see uh, that this day of the Lord, starting with the rapture and moving on through the uh, timeline that we've talked about, uh, is going to be uh, a time when he shakes the earth mightily. Verse 20, in that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made for uh, themselves to uh, worship, to, to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks, the crabs of the wrecked, uh, rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When he arises to shake the earth, that day of the Lord, I'm adding in there, sever yourselves from such men whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? In other words, listen to this. You have time now to get on your knees and bow your knee to the name of Christ. But when the day of the Lord comes, you'll be judged, we'll be judged. And if we're not found in Christ, all our loftiness and proudness will be brought low. It'll be terrible. Keep going on. Uh, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, chapter 3, verse 1, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah. Uh, uh, You're going to see what a society under judgment looks like in this chapter. You got a glimpse here of, of this coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and they were called to live in light of that. We're called to live in light of that. And now you're getting a glimpse in chapter 3 of what it looks like. The stock in the store, there isn't a supply of bread or supply of water in verse 1. The mighty man and man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner, uh, and the elder, the captain uh, of 50, and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. uh, I will give children to be their princes and babes will rule over them. People will be oppressed, everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor. Child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. In other words, society is going to be turned upside down. And when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler. I mean, you hardly have anything. Just find some clothes You be our ruler. Let these ruins be under your power. In that day, he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. That's what the society is going to look like. It's going to be chaos, upside down. People won't want to rule. The right people won't want to rule. The wrong people will want to rule, you see it. And then why is Judah ripe for judgment? Well, Jerusalem stumbled, verse 8. Judah is fallen. 
Their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. They don't hide it down in verse 9. Woe to their soul. Uh, Say to the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. But woe to the wicked. It's going to be ill with him, for the reward of his hands will be given to him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And then God's case against Judah. Uh, verse 13, the Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? You see how the Lord hates that? And Judah and the society apparently was doing this. And then, how about this one? In Judah... 16, the ladies, the daughters of Zion are walking with outstretched necks. Look at me, look at me, and wanton eyes. That means desiring eyes. They were seductresses. They they wore these things and they had jingles around their feet, uh, verse 16. And it says, therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab at the crown of the head of the daughters. And that day, day, verse 18, the Lord will take away the finery. The pendants, the bracelets, etc. Your men, verse 25, will follow by the sword. And her gates, verse 26, shall lament and mourn, and she'll be desolate, shall sit on the ground. Here it comes. And then that day, the day of the Lord. What day? This day of wrath, when the Lord comes back. Women are going to take hold of one man. Why? Because there won't be enough men to go around, because they were all just killed. God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. We'll eat our own food, wear our own apparel. Only let, us be called, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Oh, sounds bad. But here comes hope. Real quick, you must know this. In that day, the branch of the Lord, you see how good the Lord is? There's a thread here of saving hope. The branch, Jesus is called the branch in several places. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, or the Messiah is called that. It speaks of fruitfulness. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Trust God, uh, trust the Messiah before he comes. That's what he's saying here. Trust in the Messiah, and it shall come to pass, verse 3, when he reigns, that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded uh, among the living in Jerusalem. In other words, when the kingdom is established, you're being called holy. And when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and thy spirit burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion a cloud and a smoke. That speaks of the tangible presence of God. Remember, the cloud traveled with the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory. For over all the glory, it says down there, there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for the place of refuge and for a shelter. Let me reorient us real quick. Almost done. Let me reorient you. We're in chapters 1 through 6 of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 5 is an indictment against the people. We're now getting to a song that apparently, can you believe it? Isaiah heard from the Lord and then sang a song in prophecy or poetry. This is poetry. And we're talking about what 
Judah did, what its society looked like, robbers, murderers, fraud, political corruption, uh, harlots, the men didn't take care of the poor, took advantage of them. Well, look at what this says. Let me sing verse 5, chapter 1, to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard, his people. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it out and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, made wine press, so he expected it to pouring forth good grapes. But look what it brought forth. It brought forth wild grapes. Wild grapes, poisonous, unfaithful, covenant people grapes. That's what that means. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard? I've done everything I can do, the Lord says through Isaiah, that I have not uh, done in it. Why then, when I expected to bring forth good uh, grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why is it poisonous? Why is the people awful? Now please tell me, what will I do to my vineyard? Well, here's what I drove you to. I'm going to take away its hedge or its protection, and it shall be burned. And that is exactly what happens in 722 BC, when they, or, or so, 721 BC, or whenever it is, several, 10 years or so from the time of 2 Kings 16, Assyria comes and takes out all of the northern kingdom. 586 BC, by the way, is when the Babylonians come and take out all of the southern kingdom. Okay, what sins brought judgment? Verse 8. Look at this. He, he says them again. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. The sin of greed. Uh, chapter, or excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 5. The sin of drunkenness. The sin of drunkenness. All the way down until uh, through chapter 17. Well, what about chapter 18 and ch- or verses 18 and 19? I keep saying chapter, sorry. Verse 17. Now, in verses 18 and 19, what is that third woe? What sin? Doubt and carelessness. In other words, we doubt that he will ever come or that he will ever judge us. The very thing we're talking about tonight. We doubt it. Uh, the fourth woe, the fourth sin perversion and deception. The fifth sin, verse 21, sin of pride. The sixth sin, sin of bribes in seven, or, uh, 22, 23, and 24. And then I drove you here because so, I want you to get to the middle of 20, uh, 24. Here's why they're going to be carried off. The Lord tells them plainly. The Lord tells them they're going to be carried off because they have rejected the Lord of hosts, or the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You think knowing the word isn't important? And therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He was stretched out his hand and stricken them. Well, you go on now. You go on to chapter 6. Read the rest of uh, chapter 5. You go on to chapter 6. Here's where Isaiah met the Lord. He saw the vision of the Lord. In the year that you, King Uzziah died, in other words, they're saying here, in the year of a great king dying, it would be like saying, where were you when uh, one of our presidents were assassinated? Well, anyway, he said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Yes, folks, what he wants to tell you, look at this, look at this, all these countries are around them. They're going to receive judgment. There's a remnant of hope. You're worried because you're wondering where God is and why doesn't he treat me better. He's saying right here in the middle of all that, he's sitting on a throne. He's in charge. He's in charge during this pandemic. 
He's in charge whether the Republicans are in power or the Democrats or the Tea Party or the Independent Party or whatever party. He's in charge. He sits on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train, a train was important for a king. And this train filled the entire temple, means he's really important. And above it stood these burning ones. That's what seraphim means. Each one had six wings, like in Revelation 4.8. With two he covered his face. No man shall see me and live, the Lord said in Exodus 33. With two, he covered his feet in humility, and with two, he flew, and one cried to another, holy, holy, holy. Of course, they're emphasizing how holy God is, but also they're saying one God in three persons, holy, holy, holy. And the posts of the door, verse 4, were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, that presence of the Lord. So I said... Woe is me, for I'm undone, because anybody who actually has an encounter from the Lord knows immediately they need a Savior, that they're undone, that they're a sinner. And here uh, he sees this. Woe is me. The more people walk with the Lord, they un- the more they understand how sinful they have been or are, and that the Lord has come and saved them and given them new life, and now the Lord sees us as righteous, yes, but they understand what they've been saved from, and that's really important. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Like the altar of incense. Isn't that beautiful in the tabernacle? Here, the Lord's on his throne and there's an altar. And it's like the altar and incense. In other words, the Lord hears your prayers, folks. They're right there with him. And he touched my uh, mouth with it. Man, he wasn't even hurting. It seems like that would hurt, but whatever. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin spur or sin purged in other words some sort of spiritual transaction took place and now he's commissioned i heard the voice of the lord verse 8 whom shall i send who will go for us who's willing who will give their will over to me i said here i am send me or isaiah said that and he said go tell this people keep on hearing but don't understand keep on seeing but don't perceive in other words he was telling isaiah you're going to go preach to a group group of people who won't understand or respond but i want you to do it uh, so that their guilt will be certain in a sense that they've had the opportunity to come to me that you've they've shared the gospel and that's a big one for us have you heard the gospel and not responded respond Today is the day of salvation. Make the heart of this people dull, ears heavy, shut their eyes. Uh, The rest of verse 10 there. Then I said, verse 11, for how long? Of course you'd ask that question. How long am I going to do this? And he says, until the cities are laid waste. In other words, until destruction comes and the houses are without a man. The land is utterly, utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But... Again, the hope of the remnant, yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. They're going to be able to come back into the land as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. There is hope. Now listen, folks. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I'm sorry we've gone long. I'm going to get in trouble here by the IT people. 
But can you imagine the king having the prophecy from the Lord that happened in Isaiah chapter 7 and not believing or trusting? You say to yourself, no, I can't believe that. Well, listen, here we see that the Lord is indicting the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He's indicting them. He's showing them their sins. And he's saying throughout, there's hope though. There's one, the branch, who can make your sins, your crimson stain, you know, with his crimson blood, your sins, he can make you white as snow. And so you might say to yourself, why wouldn't that king respond? He should have responded. Ahaz should have responded. But what about us? Shouldn't we respond? Knowing what we know now, seeing what we're seeing here, right in God's word, that all these times ago, all these years ago, 700 BC, the Lord was, through Isaiah, giving us glimpses of what's even going to happen in our future. Why wouldn't we respond to the Lord tonight? So I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to uh, lead us out in worship. And I'm just going to say um, to all of you, contact us. Get with us. Pray a prayer of repentance here tonight. Today is the day of salvation. And come into the family of God. Quit being about fakey, churchy stuff. And be it about counting on the Lord for salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this night and for these words. I know it was long, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would build us up in this, that we would come to know these scriptures in a real and powerful way, Lord. Lord, do a mighty work in our hearts as we learn these and grow in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.